The Rio Grande is a wide band of muddy brown water that bisects the city of Albuquerque before making its way to the Gulf of Mexico. I like to walk my dog there sometimes, on the bosque trails that run alongside it. Ellie, you want to go see the river? It's a chilly morning in October. We're not far from a busy road, but it's pretty peaceful out here. You see the ducks? Or I guess it was peaceful until we showed up. Okay. I take off my shoes, and Sally and I wade into the water that makes our city possible. I guess I knew that a lot of Albuquerque's water supply came from the Colorado, but I never really thought about how. We're standing in the Rio Grande, a couple hundred miles from the nearest Colorado tributary, but some of the water we're standing in comes from the Colorado River system. This is our drinking water supply, and we only have it because we stole it from somebody else. So how did Colorado River water get here to Albuquerque? The answer lies about 180 miles to the north on the Hickory Apache Nation. Azotea Tunnel Outlet. Isn't that pretty wild? That's the voice of Daryl V. Hill, a big deal in the world of tribal water policy. Back in July, he showed me all around Hickory country. We probably put 100 miles on his blue pickup that day. Sorry, Daryl. Starting here on the eastern edge of the reservation, where something called the Azotea Tunnel lets out. So how much of this is coming from the Colorado? All of it. Every single 90,000 acres being taken out of the Colorado system and being put into the Rio Grande system. If it wasn't for Colorado River water, the Rio Grande would be dry certain times of the year in certain locations. Back in the 1960s, when Albuquerque's population was growing and the Rio Grande was starting to look overtaxed, President John F. Kennedy signed off on this plan to throw Colorado River water at the problem. The federal government paid to dam up three of its tributaries in southern Colorado and build this massive concrete tunnel. And so my father, as a teenager, actually you know, worked in, and, and, and helped dig the tunnel. And he talked about going inside here and, and, and helping us excavate a whole lot of that dirt and rock. The Azotea snakes underneath 26 miles of rugged mountains and high desert forest across the Continental Divide and dumps out 90,000 acre feet of Colorado River water annually here in the Rio Grande system. Somebody taking a shower today in Albuquerque or fishing in the Rio Chama, or irrigating a chili crop in Socorro. This is where their water's coming from. This project was a huge victory for Albuquerque, but some of the water that was being diverted rightfully belonged to the Hickory Apache Nation. Well, it wasn't tagged as Hickory water yet. Right. Yeah, and uh, again, you know, most indigenous folks, you know, this idea of owning waters is, a, is, a, is an incredibly new concept. Because, you know, it's something that was given by the Creator to help us sustain who we are and sustain life, and it gives life. The Azotea Tunnel was a massive federal investment in moving Colorado River water out of Indian country without consulting or compensating the tribes that would be affected. This is a familiar story. Throughout the 20th century, while white Westerners were divvying up the Colorado's flows amongst themselves, 30 tribal nations, 
who we now know hold rights to at least a quarter of the river, were locked out of those decisions. But the worst drought in 1,200 years is tearing up the rule book. And while the whole system is learning to live with less water, tribal nations see an opportunity to claim their seat at the table and prove they can be part of the solution. Hydrology has pushed us to the conversation of equity, justice, and basic human rights. We have the opportunity to set some of that shit straight. I'm Savannah Marr, taking over this week for Amy Scott. Welcome to How We Survive, a podcast from Marketplace about people navigating solutions to a changing climate. This is episode three, Rewriting the Rules. Last week, we took you to the Gila River Indian community and explained that tribe's decades-long battle for its water rights and how it became a major power player in the Colorado River Basin. But Gila River's relative success is a major outlier. Remember, it's just one of 30 tribes with claims to the Colorado River. Some still haven't had their water rights acknowledged. Most are still struggling to use their water the way they want to. And they're all fighting for meaningful decision-making power when it comes to managing the river during this historic drought. This episode, we're taking you to northern New Mexico and the Hickoria Apache Nation. If you Google Dulce, New Mexico, they'll mm-hmm. talk a whole lot about Archuleta Mesa and that, that that's an alien base. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I I can't verify it myself, but there's others who who claim that they've seen the mountain open up. Almost everyone who lives on the Hickoria Apache Reservation, including Daryl V. Hill, lives in the town of Dulce. Dulce is rugged and remote, way up in the southern San Juan Mountains, just below the nation's border with the Southern Ute Reservation. So that's 9,000 feet, and so right over there at the top, of that mountain over there, there's some southern Ute land right there. I tease them about poaching their Christmas trees. Daryl is in his 60s. He's got short salt and pepper hair, and he's always dressed like he's about to go hiking. He's so steeped in the world of tribal water policy that it's easy to forget he's retired from his longtime post as his tribe's water administrator. That's the tribal administration building, owed to uh, bureaucracy. There's a small grocery store, a Chinese restaurant, a gas station, and some kids outside selling snow cones. But otherwise, not much commerce. And that's the, the, the hotel that my, my family built and operated and opened in 1984. I see. And it doesn't, what, what's it? Nothing. It's closed. That's too bad. Some of the housing is new, but a lot of it looks pretty run down. You have mishmash of some HUD housing, maybe one program at one time, mostly mobile homes, again, quick access to housing. And then you have a councilman who built his house. Looks pretty nice. (laughs) (laughs) One obstacle to building more and better quality housing and to developing the economy around here is the limited water supply. A little north of Dulce, we stop at a section of the Navajo River the Colorado tributary that dips into Hickoria land. Have you spent a lot of time here? Yeah, this used to be one of my favorite spots as a kid. 
because the road wasn't paved and we would walk over here almost every uh, three or four times a week uh, as kids with our fishing rods and uh, we would catch grasshoppers to use as bait, we'd catch fish and, and just be down here most of the day. And then when it got hot, we got in the water. When it got cold, we got out of the water. And so this played a big part in my childhood for sure. Daryl's old fishing spot on the Navajo is still a popular hang. Kids splash around here on hot days. There's a wooden rocking chair sitting on the riverbank. Somebody's thinking or reading or sewing spot. But to Daryl, it looks different. There's maybe a third as much water flowing through this section of the river now as there was when he was growing up in the 60s. It's a lot less for sure. You know, like this is probably 20 CFS, maybe 25 at the most. CFS meaning cubic feet per second, a measure of the volume and speed of water flow. It used to be 60, so it would be way out here where the riverbank would be. It used to run a lot higher. What's changed, of course, is the Azotea Tunnel. If all that water wasn't being delivered to Albuquerque, it would be flowing through this riverbed and promoting water security and maybe economic growth here in Dulce. And, you know, the reality is, uh, even though we have a lot of water rights, you can see how low this is running. The reality is there's not enough. When it comes to asserting its water rights, Daryl likes to say the Hickoria Apache tribe is operating at a deficit going back over a hundred years to when the law of the river was established. There was a group of men meeting at Bishop's Lodge in 1922 to, 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 you know, to set the, the, the water future for the Colorado River while my people were barely surviving on government rations. Daryl's talking about the Colorado River Compact. Maybe you've seen the old-timey black-and-white photos from its signing. A bunch of stone-faced white guys in suits huddled around a desk at Bishop's Lodge in Santa Fe, dividing up the river's flows between each of the seven states in the Colorado River Basin. Leaders from the 30 tribal nations in the basin weren't invited to those negotiations, or pretty much any other river management discussion since. Because there was a view that they weren't going to continue to exist into the future. Remember Heather Whiteman runs him from the last episode? She's Crow, an attorney, and an expert on tribal water rights. She says those white Westerners knew tribal nations were entitled to a massive share of the Colorado and a voice in managing it because of a 1908 Supreme Court decision in Winters v. United States, where tribes had some unlikely help from the federal government. At that point in time, of course, the United States was heavily um, engaged in what we call the um, assimilation policy. In other words, their objective was to convert Indian people from nomadic and hunter-gatherer existence, especially, um, into a pastoral, sedentary lifestyle. For that to work, tribes needed water. So mounting a legal case in support of tribes' water rights wasn't about protecting tribal sovereignty. It was in service of a genocide. The feds thought, maybe if we can turn these Indians into farmers and capitalists, they'll stop being Indians. 
and if they stop being Indians, we won't owe them anything. In 1908, the Supreme Court ruled that tribes have a right to enough water to support agriculture on their reservations. And that right dated back to the establishment of those reservations, meaning that in most cases, tribes' water rights are older and more senior than any other user. In theory, tribal nations should always be first in line for water and last in line to make cuts in times of drought. So excluding tribes from a century of Colorado River management decisions wasn't an oversight. It was more like the states were making a bet that the genocidal tactics the federal government was engaging in in its dealings with tribes were going to work. The belief was that Indian people would be sort of absorbed into mainstream America and that, you know, there wasn't a need to secure and preserve their rights in ways that would, you know, put them in a structurally powerful position with respect to their lands and resources going forward. Even though the law was on their side, the burden was on tribes to insist that the law be followed. You'll see efforts by tribes to protect water rights intermittently throughout um, the 20th century. But, you know, tribes often didn't have access to attorneys during those times. It was often unusual for a tribe to be able to hire their own attorney of their choice to pursue matters like a, a water rights dispute. And in the meantime, all the water that tribes were entitled to just flowed down the river for somebody else to use for free. And, you know, nobody really talks about it. And why should they? Because they're benefiting from it. The Hickory Apache Nation caught one lucky break. It turned out this strange, rugged piece of land it had been removed to was rich in oil and gas. Developing those resources is what allowed the tribe to bust out of survival mode and start thinking about the future. Still, it was the 90s, 70 years after the Colorado River Compact was negotiated, and 30 years after the Azotea Tunnel began diverting the Navajo River before the nation had the resources to pursue a water settlement. Our settlement with the federal government provided the, the nation with 40,000 acre-feet of water. A tiny allocation compared to the Gila River Indian community's 600,000 acre-feet, in part because very little of the Hickory Apache Nation's mountainous reservation can be used as farmland. And the settlement came with a caveat that because the Azotea Tunnel was already diverting so much of the water the nation was entitled to, most of it would never reach tribal land. So the nation negotiated a leasing component that allows the nation to lease its unused water. It's provided us an ability to create incredible leverage in terms of uh, financial resources with the long-term revenue from water leases. Leases to private industry, think oil and gas companies, and for municipal use in cities like Albuquerque and Santa Fe. But the nation also sets aside lots of its allocation for conservation. Last year, it struck a deal to lease up to 20,000 acre-feet per year, half of its annual allocation to the state of New Mexico's strategic water reserve. The nation is, continues to be, you know, kind of in that place of utilizing Hickorya water, you know, for, you know, to create a sustainable water future for New Mexico. 
And the nation also has a plan in the works to lease water to another tribal community, one that's dealing with pretty serious water insecurity. We don't have uh, good running water at the house, you know, it's kind of like rusty. You can't really drink that, you know, just to take a shower and wash the dishes with it. That's the only thing, yeah, so. That's after the break. How We Survive is brought to you by you. That's right, we are public media, and donations from you, our audience, are the most important part of our budget. You help cover the cost of the rigorous reporting you're hearing in this episode. This kind of work takes a lot of time and resources, so please give what you can to help us out. Every donation makes a difference. Go to marketplace.org survive or click the link in our show notes. About 200 miles south of Dulce, on the easternmost part of the Navajo Nation, there's a small rural community called Tohajali, a Diné name that references a desert spring that used to flow here. It translates to something like the place where people draw up water. But these days, clean drinking water is really hard to come by in Tohajali. The community's water source, the Rio Puerco Aquifer, contains hydrogen sulfide, which makes the water corrosive and causes it to smell like rotten eggs, which explains why on a boiling hot morning in August, half the town seems to be waiting in line. It's a long line of cars, probably like half a mile down the road. At the end of the line is a warehouse and a team of volunteers loading cases of bottled water into people's trucks. Since the start of the pandemic, the Tohajali chapter of the Navajo Nation has been giving out bottled water for free about once a month. I'm standing near the front of the line, chatting with people as they pass through in their cars. What brings you here today? Get some water. And I appreciate getting the water and I appreciate those guys doing it. What's the water situation at home? Like what, when you turn on your tap, what comes out? Well, sometimes it's yellowish color. We can only use it for laundry and um, like taking showers and stuff. It has a smell to it. It smells like sewer, kind of. And there's rust coming out of the pipe. It's not really good, you know, it's kind of like rusty. But some people use it because they don't have a choice. And where, other than these distributions when they happen, where does your drinking water come from? Well, we pay um, out of our own pockets and bring it back in from Albuquerque. Tell me about that journey to Albuquerque, like how long, how often do you take it? And Almost like every day. Sometimes my rides break down, so. Sounds like an expensive way to get water. Yeah. Besides, you have to pay gas and everything, you know, just to go into Albuquerque to get water, you know. We purchased like about, I would say, 20 cases of water per month, and that's too much. It's expensive. Yes, it is. About how much for a case? For a case, is three ninety-six. But those expensive journeys to the city and these mornings spent waiting in line for cases of water might be coming to an end in Tohajali because of an agreement between the Navajo Nation and the Hickoria Apache Nation to pipe Hickoria settlement water from the Colorado all the way down here to Tohajali. They said that the line from Albuquerque, that water thing pipe is coming close. I heard about that, yeah. I haven't seen nothing yet. You know, when the pipeline is finished, if you're able to just turn on a tap and have clean drinking water come out, how will that change things for you? It'll be nice, you know, having a good clean water. It'll be great. 
to have um, soft water come into our reservation. Like I say, we won't be in line. <laughs> right? Those were the voices of Tohajali community members Joe Piazzo, Joanne Chavez, Judy Sandoval, Rihanna Apachito, Gilbert Platero, Drusilla Chaiki, and Randall Pablo. Construction of that new pipeline is slated to start soon. And when Hickory Settlement water starts flowing through it, that will be a proud moment for Daryl V. Hill. He says it shows that when tribes have access to the water they're entitled to, they use it responsibly. I'm absolutely privileged that, you know, water gives me voice and it gives me the ability to speak on those broader issues of, of you know, acknowledging, you know, indigenous people's basic humanity. But that's important. A funny thing about Daryl is that he never set out to be his tribe's water crusader. He sort of stumbled into the role after spending most of his adult life as a businessman on the reservation, running restaurants and hotels, and eventually the tribe's two casinos. 20 years ago, Daryl was pretty sure he was going to solve all his nation's problems with gaming money. He told me he felt like some kind of Moses figure, only Indian and a capitalist, a prophet who was going to lead his people out of their struggle. Until Daryl got fired. The way he tells it, there was a change in tribal leadership, politics got messy, and he was asked to leave. I thought the tribe would get their senses back and they would realize the error in their ways by firing me because, you know, I just made a bunch of money and that was my own ego. The tribe didn't ask him to come back. And at that point, Daryl couldn't go back to the hospitality biz. He needed a steady salary and benefits to support his family. And so um, that's how I became the water administrator. He knew just enough about water policy to get through the interview and apparently enough to get the job. It was always going to be just a brief stopping point on my way to making millions of dollars. Because <laughs> 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 that's what it was all about. I mean, that's what I need. That was always ingrained with me about what was important and you know, what I should be striving for and what my ambition was about. It was about money. And, um, and then that's why I think, you know, my, my, my participation and my involvement in the water, water dialogue now is like, it's something that I would have never imagined. Daryl had a couple of burning bush moments early on that made tribal water work feel like a calling. One was during a trip to the Colorado River Water Users Association Conference. The first time he encountered a room full of water managers from cities and rural farming districts around the West and realized he was on the outside looking in. And they called them water buffaloes because, or white water buffaloes, because that's been traditionally who has, has you know, controlled the policy of the Colorado River. And I remember they were in the conference room and they're all sitting around a, a big table uh, and laughing and it was pretty monochromatic. And even the age demographic was pretty old. And I was like, I felt really uncomfortable. This drove home what he already knew, that there is a really big difference between having a legal right to Colorado River water and having a place in the exclusive arcane system that actually manages the river. Because I'm like, wow, I need to get in there. (laughs) 
And so I shoot, I don't know what dad me do it and create her again because it's not like me, but I grabbed the chair. I'm like, hey, can you scoot over? And I just squeezed in. Since the early 2000s or so, this is how some tribal leaders have claimed a role in the process by insisting on one. We, 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 we kind of jokingly call this, that this was forced inclusion, where we forced ourselves uh, at the table. That's Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis of the Gila River Indian community. We heard from him last episode. He's remembering one of the first times a handful of tribes asserted themselves this way. Back in 2016, when the basin states were drawing up a plan to share water cuts amid worsening drought, the state of Arizona's plan involved some sacrifices from tribes that they never agreed to. Gila River and, and the Colorado River Indian tribes and the Thonautham Nation, uh, we controlled a significant amount of water. And we were pretty much not at the table when those negotiations began. Uh, in fact, you had the federal government uh, working and meeting with the states and already uh, looking at ways where they could cut our water without our input. Those three tribal nations said, hey, you're breaking the law. You have to include us in this process. And once the Gila River Indian community was in the room with all those white water buffaloes who couldn't agree, it made sure it was part of the solution. The community agreed to leave a significant amount of its annual allocation in Lake Mead to help shore up dwindling water levels and protect other Arizona users from painful cuts. We were able to push forward collectively a successful plan. And if it wasn't for the tribes in Arizona, that would not have been successful. This is a point tribal leaders are constantly trying to drive home. Including tribes in river management isn't optional. It's the law, based on the federal government's trust in treaty obligations. And it's not an extra burden heaped onto an already unwieldy negotiation process. It's part of the solution to the Colorado River crisis. Lorelai Cloud is vice chairman of the Southern Ute Indian Tribe, which shares its southern border with the Hickory Apache. She says tribal leaders come to these discussions with a different perspective. For them, water is more than just a resource, and it's certainly not a commodity. Because tribes have a different relationship with nature, and sometimes that's difficult for other people to to understand. But I, I know that like for the Ute people, we pray for our water and our environment every day. And we use the water in our ceremonies. We know that we have a spiritual mandate to protect our environment. And culturally, Vice Chairman Cloud says Indigenous leaders are comfortable with the idea of sharing and collective sacrifice for the good of the whole, something other water managers in the basin seem to really struggle with. And so whether those that inclusion is in meetings, conferences, uh, listening sessions, roundtables, or forums, or whatever it may be, including tribes and getting them um, getting them active and participating in those conversations is, is really, really important. Right now, we have some good um, momentum in, in having the Indigenous voice at the table. Vice Chairman Cloud is a leader in something called the Ten Tribes Partnership. It's a coalition of tribal nations looking to turn that momentum into a formal role for tribes in managing the Colorado River. 
And right now, tribes have a real opportunity to make that happen because the current guidelines for managing the river expire at the end of 2025. I'm very um, optimistic that the 2026 guidelines are going to have inclusion of the Indigenous voice. I asked the vice chairman, what exactly would that look like? Are we shooting for equal structural inclusion? Each tribe gets its own representative and its own vote in management decisions, just like the states? You know, for um, if we're going to, you know, think big, I would say yes. Again, because you're, you have the United States government, you have each state being represented. Those are all sovereigns. So you have 30 sovereigns within that, those, that respective area. So they also should be included. In the meantime, Native people in the basin are living with the impact of short-sighted management decisions they never had a say in. Remember the Colorado River Compact, that 101-year-old agreement that divides up the river's flows? Those white guys who negotiated it didn't just exclude most of the relevant parties. They also got their math and their hydrology wrong. The river has been overallocated and overpromised since 1922, and drought is driving the system to a breaking point. Each tribe has a different reality in relation to the climate crisis. Heather Whiteman runs him again, the law professor. It is frustrating that at the time when tribes have finally secured some access to the resources needed to pursue a role in the process, now we're presented with this environmental catastrophe that is no fault of the tribes, right? That that's now a limiting factor. This is why Daryl Vihill is laser-focused on that structural inclusion Lorelai Cloud was talking about. He says it's the federal government's responsibility to create a formal role for tribes in the management process. And until that happens... It's impossible, or it makes it incredibly difficult for a tribe to be able to be self-determinant in what it, it wants. It, it, it feels is in the best interests of its own tribe in terms of the management of its water and an ability to use that water the way it wants to. And, and if we don't have the structural inclusion in this next set of guidelines, tribal water could be a target. So what's our next stop? We're gonna go south here so you can, we can see Lahara Lake and what's left of it anyways. We pull off the paved road onto a dusty two-track. What's left of Lahara Lake is a dry field of sagebrush and wildflowers. It's a casualty of the mega drought. How long has this been dry for? Ah, a while. At least a couple decades. This is where Daryl's ancestors from the white clan of the Hickoria Apache Nation made their home around the turn of the 20th century. Before Dulce was developed, and when there were under a thousand Hickoria people left. In the distance, we can see the little adobe house where his grandfather grew up. Fishing here and camping here was obviously, you know, very special to me. And, and then I'm reminded of, you know, those images that my father talks about in terms of what that must have looked like, you know, back in the day when he was a young man and they were growing strawberries right on the other side of that bank there. And Granny uh, getting mad at him for, for taking the strawberries when he wasn't supposed to and that kind of stuff, yeah. Daryl's family doesn't really hang out here anymore. 
His kids don't have a connection to this place. If he ever has grandchildren, he doesn't think they will either. It's incredibly sad because uh, I won't ever get to experience that again in my lifetime. You know, and I'm grateful that I got to experience it. And I'm, I'm sad for this generation and maybe the next couple generations who, who won't be able to see it either. I mean, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, it sounds like you've got some hope that, like, this won't always look this way, that it might someday look the way that it did when you were a kid. Yeah, absolutely I do. And I really, I love the notion of hope as, as a verb. <laughs> and, and sometimes in, in this environment right now, I mean, it's hard to generate that hope sometimes. And uh, more than ever, I, it's my opinion that we need those things that, you know, my grandparents taught me about what we're grounded in, in terms of who we are as a spiritual people and, and the, the continued development of that spirituality that we've been practicing for thousands of years, which is, I think, you know, you know the salvation of, of this planet. The Hickoria Apache Nation has already lost control of so much of its water. Securing structural inclusion in the post-2026 management guidelines won't change that. It's a forward-looking solution, meant to protect tribes' hard-fought allocations while the system figures out how to live with drought, and ensure that tribal leaders can bring traditional knowledge and innovations to the table. Daryl says it's tough, sometimes demoralizing work. But he's grateful for the left turns in his life that brought him back to the river. It's like, why me? And then it's like, why not me? <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, I'm doing this work. And it's absolutely creator-driven for me because I'm, 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 the things that I'm doing are unrecognizable in terms of where I was at just, you know, 13 years ago. I don't know where I'd be. And uh, I'd probably be dead because you know, I was pretty morally bankrupt when I finished the casino business. <laughs> so I'm, I always say that I'm, the best thing my tribe ever did for me was to fire me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave a review or share with a friend. It really helps. Next episode, what happened when big farms moved in near a small town in the desert? When their personal wells started to run dry, they bailed. And that's really the big picture. That's what we're talking about, is what happens to our town when we start to run out of water. And how they fought back. How We Survive is hosted by Amy Scott. I'm Savannah Marr. I reported and wrote this episode with help from our production team, Haley Hirschman, Lena Fonza, Courtney Burkseeker, and Sophia Polisa Carr. Our senior producer is Caitlin Esch. Our editor is Jasmine Romero. Sound design by Chris Julin and audio engineering by Brian Allison. Special thanks to John Gordon and John Fleck. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Bridget Bodner is director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is executive director. Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. 